Good morning. Uh, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. As you get there, how many of you have a vacation planned out for the summer? You can raise your hand if you have a vacation coming up or will have one. Yeah? No, that, that's not a lot of you. Man. Uh, vacation this year. No vacation this year? Man. Yes, uh, maybe, maybe the sermon on work that's coming up is going to be really good. Overworking crowd over here. Um, so, uh, vacation. Um, so, if you did have a vacation uh, coming up, maybe next year or whatever, do you have a realistic expectation of that vacation? Because unrealistic expectations always lead to disappointment. So unrealistic expectations always lead to disappointment. Like if you go to a website and look all these pictures and, and glowing restaurants and this beautiful sunsets and, uh, and all the people laughing. Like did you notice that every time you go to a promotional website about anything, the people are the most joyful people ever, right? Like they're Right? No. And so like the, the actual place will not be as nice as the promotional website. And uh, so let's imagine, let's imagine together that we're going to be going to Disney World as a family. You're going to Disney World, not all together, but just as your own families, right? You're going to a place of magic, place of happiness, place of imagination. But they don't tell you this, that it's also a place of the weather being 110 degrees and humidity being 100%. They don't tell you that on the brochure. They don't tell you that on the Disney's website, right? I lived in Florida. I know how miserable that is. They don't tell you that you will stay in line in that weather for about two and a half hours to them just to ride for 30 seconds, right? They don't tell you that. That's not on the website. That's not something that you're like, oh, like that, that's marketing, right? Like, come, stand in the hot sun for three hours and then you'll get a ride. No, they don't tell you that. That's not there. They don't tell you that along with laughing and skipping, your kids will be also spending a large percent of the day complaining, whining in Disney World. Just don't tell you that. So unrealistic expectations will lead to disappointment. These promotional websites, they don't prepare you for an actual vacation. And the same way, in the same way, that is with marriage. Dating and engagement are kind of like visiting a promotional website. It's like visiting a promotional He's He's opening doors for you. You're like, oh, you're so sweet. I love you. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. That, that's kind of how the conversation goes, right? No, you hang up. No, you hang up. <laughs> right? You want to cook something for me? Of course I want to cook something for you. I love cooking something for you. Let me take you to the best restaurant in town. I just love, just, can we spend as much time as possible together? Right? Then you get married. And you discover that that was promotional website kind of stuff. That was not the reality. The promotional website fools you into believing that's what marriage would, would have looked like. And, and, and if you bought to that idea, then your marriage is a bunch of disappointment right now. 
You didn't think about the fact that his breath stinks in the morning, right? <laughs> or you didn't know how many hours it would take her to get ready. You're like, you only saw the final product, right? You saw the final product, and so you see, you see them in the morning, and you see them in the rough side. You see them angry when you're married. Because when you live with someone, you can't take a break from them. When you're dating, yeah, you can take a break. Oh, man, it was so good. It was so awesome. See you in a couple days. Let's go on another awesome date. And it's easy to show only your best face during dating days. Check out the Instagram page from a, a dating couple, right? Like you see them and they're like holding hands, skipping down the sidewalk, right? Dressed in the nicest clothes. Like you never see somebody not dressed nice on Instagram, especially while dating. <laughs> they just look hip. And that's, that's all promotional website stuff. Reality often doesn't set in until the promise to love for better or for worse has allowed to, for guards to drop. Reality is when you're talking about the real stuff or you're in such a fight that you just don't know if, if there's going to be a resolution to that fight. And you're not sure how it's going to end up. Marriage sometimes looks like paying bills together and looking at the account and saying, where did you spend that money? What did you do there? Marriage sometimes looks like your wife telling you that you can't have her that night. Take a picture of that and put it on Instagram. Go to Facebook Live during that moment where you're sitting on the couch. Because the... Maybe you're thinking, maybe you're thinking right now, like, why are you talking about this? You're bumming me out. I'm talking about this because the passage that we're about to study covers the first of three relationships. It covers husbands and wives. It talks about a marriage. And and the following weeks, we'll talk about parent and children and then employee and employer relationship. And the the reason we're going to get to slow down and walk through just a few verses at a time the next few weeks is because the, the... Because these relationships are indicators of how well we understand and apply the gospel. These these types of relationships are indicators of how well we understand and apply the gospel. Because here's the reality. All of us can talk about the gospel. All of us can, can... Put a couple sentences together and explain the gospel. All of us can, can even explain our need for the gospel. But marriage, parenting, and work, and, and just relationships in general reveal how well the gospel has connected with our heart. These relationships are like a litmus test to see if Jesus is truly your Lord and if you, if, if you truly rest in the gospel in practice. Or are you still stuck on the promotional website and daydreaming of your perfect vacation, perfect marriage, perfect kids, perfect job? The promotional website is not reality. And as exciting as it is, it's only a tiny tiny sampling of, yes, harder, but much more, more glorious reality. We get to see in our passage how the gospel affects marriage, how the gospel makes marriage maybe the most powerful and and beautiful relationship on earth. 
And because Jesus is our Lord, we can, we can rest in his design for marriage. Right? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And so if you're able, please stand as we read these next two verses together. Colossians 3, verse, starting verse 18. Let's read this together. Uh, Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. This is the word of God. You can have a seat. So, remember, is it echoing? I feel like I need to move back. I can move back to. Um, so remember, this conversation and this text is, um, is re- this about relationship exists in the context of Jesus as, a, as our Lord. If you remember from chapter 3, verse 1, Paul and Timothy says, If then you have been ri- raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So this verse, the chapter 3 is a verse that transitions from a broader audience to those who have put their hope in Jesus. And as you get this new heart, the, the, there are things that, you don't, that, that don't belong with the new nature. And you, don't, and you need to constantly bring to God, right? And then, um, and with this new nature, you get to interact with others. And this new nature is the nature that that you've been adopted as children of God who are loved, chosen, and holy. And and that's the nature that that God puts on us. That's what what, what it means to be in Christ. And as you're in Christ, that means you're loved, chosen, holy. And now, with that nature, you start to interact with one another. Right? And that's what we talked about last week a little bit. As as we interact with one another, we're, we're, we're getting to bear with one another, forgiving one another. And all of this is because Christ forgave you. And all of this because Christ is remaking you. He's remaking you in his identity of loved, chosen, holy. And then, and then as we're walking through, Paul and Timothy get a little, little more specific almost. Like they zoom in from general Christian relationships into, hey, let me talk about these three types of relationships. Marriage, husband, and wife. And so, as we jump into this conversation of marriage, the, a helpful resource on this topic is a book, The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy and Kat, Kathy Keller. Right? It's, it's back there. If, if, if you're interested in what we would be talking through, uh, grab that book, and it's a really great resource. Uh, especially a chapter towards the end of the book called Embracing the Other. So um, if you don't want to read a book, just read that chapter. It's great. It's, it talks about husband, talks about wives and their roles and stuff. Um, also, if you're not married and you're thinking, oh, great, like I came to church, I was going to worship Jesus, but now we're talking about marriage. Like, um, it's, it's okay. This conversation can and may apply to you too, right? So maybe one day you'll be married. Or if you won't get married, that, that's okay too because because you're going to walk and do life with other married couples, and you're going to be speaking into their lives too as a friend. So, so if you find yourself in any place in that conversation, that's okay. Um, so you'll be able to hear the truth of Scripture, and maybe you're like, okay, that's my friend that I can get to speak the truth to or whatnot. Okay? So, um, so don't, don't check out if you're single, basically, is what I'm getting at. So jump in. These two verses. Wives, submit to your husband as fitting to the Lord, and husbands, love your wives. 
and not be harsh with them. So these two verses, these two verses, uh, think of these two verses as, a, as partners in a dance, right? As partners in a dance. We start to unpack each verse and remember that there's the other side. Like think of this as like, as we talk about wives and we're going to talk about submitting to your husbands. Think of, hey, we'll get to the husband too. There's a dance happening here. There's a rhythm that's happening here. So don't, don't be like, excuse me, talk about my husband a little bit. Like it's okay. There's a, there's a partnership happening here. We'll get to your husband in a second kind of thing. And so, so let's talk about wives. So wives, submit to your husband as it's fitting in the Lord. So in the New Testament, the verb submit is consistently used as voluntary yieldedness to a recognized authority. So biblical submission happens in several relationships. The wife to her husband, as we see in our passage in Ephesians 5, children to their parents, you see this in Ephesians 5, believers to the elders of the church, you see that in Hebrews 13, 17, citizens to the state, we see that in Romans 13, uh, servants to their masters, you see that um, in 1 Peter, or, and then each believer to other believers, as we see also in Ephesians 5, right? So that clears things up. Right? No one in, in this room now feels confused or defensive. So the word submit can be offensive unless, unless we fully understand the roles that God intended when he created men and women. So it can be offensive unless we fully understand the roles that God intended when he created men and women. And for us to do that, we need to go back to the beginning. We've got to go back to Genesis. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 28, this is when God created men, right? So God created men in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every little thing that moves on the earth. So it was God's idea for people to be uniquely male and uniquely female. And these two verses point out that men and women were created in absolute equality. They're made in the image of God. That they're, they're both blessed and they're giving dominion over the earth. And notice that God called men and women to be fruitful and multiply. He, got, he called them to procreate. You need both to accomplish that task. And then in Genesis 2, we find details of how the creation story gets unfolded, right? So you get to Genesis 2, and God created Adam. He gave him a task of naming all things on this earth. But we find something interesting in verse 18 of 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone, and I'll make him, I will make him a helper fit for him. So this is the first time in the Bible we see God use this phrase, not good. It's not good in light of his creation order. Everything was good. Everything was great until here. It's not good. Creation was not complete without woman. When Adam sees Eve, he immediately names her. But unlike with everything else he has named, for her, he just he busts out in a song. He, he recognized that she is the pinnacle of creation. He says, this 
at last is bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of men. Right? Like, so Adam can't even hold it in. He sees Eve and he just, he's like, there's a song in him that comes out. He can't describe this. He, he, Adam can't even describe this woman without poetry. But how does God describe women? He says, I'll make him a helper fit for him. And the English translation of helper it doesn't do justice to what the Hebrew word ezer means, right? In the Old Testament, this word was often to describe God as the helper of mankind. Other times, it was used to describe military help or reinforcement. It's like in Ezekiel twelve fourteen. There it is. Um, it says, I will scatter towards every wind all who are around him. His helpers and all his troops, and on unsheathed the sword after them. So one commentary pointed out that this word, so talking about just this word, it, it, it does not inherently imply any sort of hierarchy. He said this to help someone does not imply that the helper is stronger or weaker than the helped, simply that the latter's strength is inadequate by itself. And so again, we're talking about this word. We're not saying, uh, if you go to those passages describing God as the one who's helping, of course, the context dictate the passage. But if you just take this word and understand the word, this word by itself, there's no hierarchy within it. Does that make sense? So when God calls woman a helper, this is not a weak or passive or domestic word. It's a powerful description But then chapter 3 happens. Chapter 3 of Genesis, sin enters the world where where the man and woman were complete. They were united. They walked around with God before this. And then in chapter 3, their perfect roles, their relationships are broken and blame shifting and hiding and selfishness enters the picture. And because of this brokenness, we're having this conversation this morning, because of sin, we balk at roles we were created for. But it wasn't the brokenness that created roles. This distinction between men and women, the women's role is, desi- is a design conversation. Right? It was in chapter 2. It was chapter 1. So the call of women to be a helper or an ezer to their husband is part of God's perfect intended design. Men and women have different strengths that complete each other. In Christ, women are empowered to be the ezer, the helper that their husband can't thrive without. And our passage today says, wives, submit to your husband as, it, as is fitting in the Lord. And because of sin, the submission can be difficult. It can be difficult. It looks like submission of Christ to the authority of the Father, willingly surrendering his life on the cross. It means willingly emptying yourself of your own way and your self-focused desires and giving yourself up for your husband. Let me read that again. It means willingly emptying yourself of your own way, your your self-focused desires, and giving yourself up for your husband. So let's take a pause there. 
So we talked about one side of the dance, right? One of the partners. Now we're moving to the other side of the conversation. And then we'll get practical. We'll get very practical. We'll talk through what does this actually mean on the ground? Like what does it mean with decision making? And and how does this play out? So we'll get there. So now let's talk about husbands. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Men, for us to understand our design more fully, we need to read Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. So here, Paul is unpacking this a little bit more. And he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Mm -hmm without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So, what are husbands called to do? Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This love this goes all the way down to the lowest of places. This love dies to self. This love becomes what Christ is for us. And John, right before Jesus goes to the cross, before Jesus went to the cross, we see an example of this kind of love. In John chapter 13, this is the, the passage where they're having the meal, they're having the Passover. But right before all that, he gets down. And, and what's ironic is that they were talking about who's the greatest, right? And so he gets down on his knees, takes, I'm guessing, a bucket of water and washes their feet, right? And so in John 13... 12 through 17, we read, And when he washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So the way husbands ought to love their wives is by dying to self, by picking up a towel and serving his wife. Jesus washed their stinky feet. He served them. And this was night before he went to the cross. He practically showed his love to them. And that didn't stop with washing their feet, right? Like he didn't just wash their feet. He was like, guys, you're good. Awesome. Peace out. You know, I'm going to heaven. No, like he washed their feet. And then he went to the cross. We're called to love our wives the same love that Christ loved the church. Jesus died on the cross for his church. We're called to that. And if we start to live in light of that, when we earn the title of servant leader who looks at Jesus all the time, who expresses his authority through sacrificial love, loving and sacrificing for his wife, when we love in such a way, we're living out Christ in us. 
Only when husbands do love with this kind of sacrificial love, emulating Christ on the cross, only then can the dance move in a beautiful rhythm. If husbands are living this out then they're, and are loving their wives well, wives will not have a hard time following, living, submitting, because together they're submitting to the Lord. Jesus is the Lord in their marriage. So, I want to get practical now. Get, get on the ground and just really talk through some of the, the roles. Of what does this look like for us, right? And, um, and so I'm going to have four practical principles for guiding uh, this husband-wife relationship. This is not law. So don't walk away and thinking, okay, like, you got to be living this up now. No, like this is, this is a conversation that you guys can apply to your marriage, right? This is principles. This is, this is something that, that, that practically you, you try it out and try it. It's wisdom kind of conversation. Um, and I wish I came up with this list uh, because they're pretty, it's a pretty sweet list. Uh, but again, it's Tim and Kathy Keller from that book. Uh, they walk through it and I, I'm just borrowing this from them. Um, so first one. And I'm going to repeat them twice so you can kind of think through them. They're, they're kind of they're big sentences. So the husband's authority, like the son's over us, is never used to please himself, but only to serve the interest of his wife. So the husband's authority, like the son's over us, is never used to please himself, but only to serve the in- interest of his wife. So... Husbands, if Jesus is our example, and he is, then we don't do anything to please ourselves. This means that the husband doesn't simply take, doesn't make all the decisions. He's asking his wife questions. He's asking his wife questions. He's getting to know her heart. And he'll be, he'll be the final voice in the decision, but that decision should never surprise his wife. And if it surprises his wife then you're probably practicing your authority in an unhealthy way. Did you hear that well? If, if she is surprised by that decision, that means you haven't gone and talked to her enough. You need to go and, and revisit that conversation over and over to a point that when there's a decision, she goes, yeah, that was the decision that we discussed, that we have talked through. This also does not mean that the husband gets away in every disagreement. Again, if Christ is the example and he is, then you will want to figure out what is happening with your wife so much. By the time you finishing, finish figuring it out, there might not even be a disagreement. Don't fall into a temptation to always, to always prove that you're right. Don't fall into that temptation to prove that you're always right. Do fall into serving her as Christ served you by dying for you. Do fall into that. So that's number one. Number two, a wife is never to be merely compliant, but is to use her resources to empower. A wife is never to be merely compliant, but is to use her resources to empower. And so earlier I called a marriage a dance, right? I called it a dance earlier. There's two people involved. This means your wife is the most trusted friend and a counselor in that relationship. 
This means that you get to hear each other out. This, this, there's a conversation that has so much love and maybe contention, right? Like maybe there's a conversation happening and there's, there is a contention here. She must bring every gift and resource that she has to the table. And you, you, you as a man, I need to be wise knowing when to allow her expertise to trump your own opinion about something. And this is only possible when the husband is loving as Christ loved the church. And the wife is submitting in the same way Christ submitted to the Father's authority, willingly giving his life on the cross. So that's number two. Number three, a wife is not to give her husband unconditional obedience. A wife is not to give her husband unconditional obedience. So Peter in Acts 5, uh, 29 says, we must obey God rather than men, right? This means that if a husband wants to do something shady, like sell drugs or physically abuse her, she should exercise love towards him and, and forgive him, but have him arrested. Yes, I said that. She should forgive him and practice love, but have him arrested. Tim Keller or Keller say this, it's never kind or loving to anyone to make it easy for him or her to do wrong. Okay, number four. Assuming the role of servant leadership is only done for the purpose of ministering to your wife and family. So assuming the role of servant leadership is only done for the purpose of ministering to your wife and family. So husband and wife should serve each other uh, unselfishly. But maybe you're thinking, how does this authority play out in the context of such a relationship? How does this play out? The Kellers say the answer is that the head can only overrule his spouse if he is sure that her choice would be, dis- be destructive to her or to the family. He does not use his headship or servant leadership selfishly to get his own way about the color of the car they buy who, or who gets to hold the remote controller or whether he has the night out with the boys or stays home to help the kids when his wife asks him. So what happens if there's a stalemate, right? I mean, everybody's thinking this. So like, what happens if you are, there's a decision on the table and both of you, you know, you present, you sought your wife's heart. You really went after her. You were like, hey, can we make this decision? And your wife brought all this wisdom and you both talked through it. And then at the end of it, you're leaning this way. She's leaning, leaning this way, right? Stalemate. You can't make a decision. It's, it's kind of like, what do we do now, right? The stalemate is broke. Um, you can't make it so the stalemate is broken because each of you will try to put the other's interest first. If you're living this out, you're going to want to put the other person's interest first. The wife will want to respect the husband's leadership. The wife is going to be saying, hey, you do this. What, I, I believe what you're doing. The husband is going to be in return saying, no, 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 don't make it. I want, like, that's some wise things. I, they both will want to almost listen to the other. The husband will try to please his wife. And if you're doing this, rarely can a tie remain a tie. What happens if a tie then remains a tie? Then you submit to your roles. You talk. You wrestle. You talk. You wrestle. You talk some more. You wrestle some more. You, 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 you seek all the wisdom in that conversation. 
Your wife brings your thoughts, and then she might bring things that you don't even like on the table. She might, you don't even have answers to that questions, right? Like, it's, there's a lot going on there, but you listen. You're listening. You're taking it in. And then, as a man, you have to lean in and say, the best wisdom is to do this. Whatever this is. Right? You both, then, both of you then walk in this. So whatever the decision after the stalemate, after all of this was decided, it's not then the man goes this way and the wife goes that way. No, no, you both hold hands, walk that way. Whatever the decision was made, trusting that that is the wisdom and direction and guidance of God and the Holy Spirit to walk that way. Listen. This conversation of servant leadership and um, it's not easy. It's not easy from both sides. It's just not. It's not a conversation that, that is fun to talk about. Submit. Hey, wife, submit to your husband. It's like, man, that's a hard conversation. Or like, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Like, that's a hard conversation. Like, if you don't think that's a hard conversation, you're, you're, you're out of your mind. Because that is a hard conversation from both sides. It's not easy for husbands to hear that his love needs to represent Christ. Sacrifice for his, for his wife as much as Christ loved and sacrificed for her. But this is the way that God designed marriage to work. These are the clothes that, that we get to wear. This is what it means to put on Christ. This type of marriage is a perfect dance in the rhythm of, of wives submitting as, as Jesus submitted to the Father and went to the cross. As, as, as guys like men to love their wives with the sacrificial love, serving her constantly. And it's like a dance that's starting to happen there. Will you have conflicts? Yeah, you'll have conflicts. Will it get messy? Yeah, it'll, it'll get messy. But nobody said that marriage would be easy. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful and it's perfect in design. This type of marriage is a perfect dance. As Ephesians 5, Paul says of marriage, he says this. He says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He again, uh, in, in there, compares marriage with Christ and the church. It's a beautiful thing. The, the brokenness that we experience often is from selfishness or, or from sinfulness. The mystery of marriage and the cross is intertwined. The cross is, is the undoing of the brokenness that happened in Genesis 3. Because of the cross, we get to return to our roles the way they played out in paradise. Servant leader and Ezer. The cross gives us the power to put our own interests behind us and let us see the in- interests of the other. Why? Why? Because Jesus put away his interests. On our behalf. In Philippians 2, 4 through 6, he says this. Let each 
of you look not only on his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is our example in marriage. He, though he was in the form of God, willingly gave up his total godlikeness. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That's our way in marriage. That's our example. That's our, you know, if you're going, how do I do this? What's the practical steps? That, that's your practical steps. That's what you do. That's how you live this out. So, as we end, may we be able to put on these clothes that, that we just talked about. May we rest in this design. May God, God's power rest on every marriage in this room. Let me pray for us.